I'm Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Conversing. joy today to welcome Todd Shy as our guest on Conversing. Todd and I have known each other for many, many years, and I've been an admirer of his from a distance. And though we've never lived very close to one another, I've benefited greatly from our friendship over the years, and I'm delighted that he's our guest. He serves as the head of Upper Division Avenues, the World School. And the focus of our conversation today is a recent book that he's written entitled Teaching Life, Life Lessons for Aspiring and Inspiring Teachers. Welcome, Todd. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. It's a privilege to be with you. You know, there's so many questions that this book holds. I began to feel as though I was on a kind of Grand Canyon expedition with you, (laughs) where there was magnificence and glory and beauty and unexpectedness and rawness and vulnerability. So many things that are part of a great expedition, which certainly teaching and learning are really all about. Let's start, though, with one of your own favorite teacher stories. I love (laughs) asking people to describe teachers that have been especially influential to them. So we'll touch on several because you named several in the book, but let's start there. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I've had the privilege of having a handful of teachers who had a big impact on me and in different ways. And it surprises me to name my most formative teacher as a quiet teacher because I'm sort of a sucker for the big charismatic presence and the dynamism and the passion. And I'm in favor of that. But the teacher who had the biggest impact on my life was my 11th grade English teacher, Miss Acuff who would sit on her stool in front of the classroom, almost never leaving the stool with a sweater over her shoulders and coffee in her hands or her grade book in front of her. And she was just methodical and quiet. And it surprises me that that's the teacher who changed my life. But what she did, unknown to me, she was just really paying attention to me. I was a little bit of a cynical high school junior And I was cynically avoiding the things we were reading in class, instead going to the back of the book and reading more modern things. And I thought, why aren't we doing this? I had a streak of cynicism. And she held me back at the end of class one day, not to rebuke me, but to hand me a book and say, I think you'd really like this book. And it was an extraordinary moment in retrospect, because one, I did really like the book. I had a basketball game that day and I read it on the bus going to this away game up in the coal mines. But it was being recognized. It was the fact that she was paying attention to me and also thought I was interesting enough to be interested in this other thing. And it woke me up to something. And I have never forgotten it. And my gratitude for her is immense and ongoing. My fantasy was to finish writing this book and present it to her. Yes. And she passed away a couple of years before I could. And it was one of the disappointing, heartbreaking things about finishing this book when I did. Right, right. So she was paying attention. I mean, just those two words and then paying attention that was combined with that and an initiative on her part, which she obviously could have avoided offering you, that actually indicated an acute awareness of what you were sending her as signals of where you were and what questions and issues 
That's right. And a great teacher, I mean, what she did also was to recognize what I could do with that. So teachers see and recognize kids, but then it's like the shrewd move to know what's the next thing you could do. And that's where the artistry comes in. You can't script that ahead of time. When people tell stories about their teachers, you see that thread running through them. It put the next thing in front of them to pull them forward. Yes, yes, exactly. It evokes also, though, for me, the question, what makes for a learner? Because she was clearly seeing you as a learner. So the book obviously is about teaching. That's where we're going to concentrate our conversation. But what makes a learner a learner? It's an encounter between a teacher and a learner. It's the space between them. And so Parker Palmer has this wonderful image. There's you, the teacher, there's the student, but there's a third thing in the classroom. And it's the third thing between you where teaching happens and learning happens. And so I think the learner makes themselves available to that space and the teacher artfully cultivates that space where then these incredible things can happen between them, mostly inside the learner, but it's how you cultivate that encounter in that space. Right, right. So in many of the cases that you illustrate such traits in the book, it's about how teachers provoke or cultivate or stimulate learners in order to be ready to receive as well, right? It's the pre-cultivation, then it's the cultivation, and then it's the attention. Let's just explore that a bit more because I think that especially in a digital age and especially in a sort of fixated small screen world, there's an easy obsession that doesn't actually become a genuine learner. It just feels like it's just an observer, a passive observer, rather than actually an engaged learner. Do you have any thoughts about that that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's the emphasis on the human dimension of the teacher and the student. And I do think that the teacher has to do anything in their power to connect with kids first to motivate them into that space. Thoreau has the great line that we only learn what we're ready to learn. What is that mindset that you prepare in kids and make room for? I think it's building strong relationships and strong community in the classroom. Students need to feel like this is about them and it's their space and you're claiming them and knowing them, but also claiming them. There was a recent documentary film, Mark, about the ballet choreographer, George Balanchine. Yes. And I was fascinated with it as a teacher watching his students reflect on him as a teacher. But he would say, I love these students. You see how this neck bends, how this leg lifts. Like, that's what I'm paying attention to. And the students all said he really knew us as individual dancers. It's the beginning of like making a great dancer or a great student is that somehow that claiming. But the kids have to know that, that you're invested in that and you're doing that. And that's where it's like artistry of like, what does a classroom community and culture look like to allow that to happen? Right. And that's where it just underscores the crisis that has occurred during these COVID years when that sort of in-person dynamic can't really be demonstrated. I'm not saying that a lot of that can't still actually be reflected in online learning, but it is a serious challenge in being able to really connect in that visceral way that you're describing. Yeah, it takes away the incidental parts of your relationship. It makes everything intentional on a screen. Though I'm in an administrative position, I taught an elective last fall, and I still would stand at the door at the end of class, and I would give students random prompts. Like I said, I want to get to know you over the course of this elective, and each time I would have just a crazy question, and we would have an exchange at the door, and it was just my attempt to get to know who they were, but it also became a ritual of like, all right, here's the question today. 
But you have to care enough about that to structure that into your, so that the kids are sensing, this is not just material I'm learning or a class I'm taking. It's an experience I'm having together with these other students and this teacher. And it has certain rituals and it has certain moments of beauty and it has uh, certain humaneness to it. And that's hard to do online. (laughs) Absolutely. Very hard to do online. One of the chapters that I thought was particularly interesting was the chapter that's entitled Virtues of Great Teachers. Tell us about some of those virtues and why those virtues are so significant. Yeah, I was trying to think of ones that were maybe a little less expected. And so I acknowledge this wasn't an exhaustive, comprehensive list, but I was trying to think of what are things that people who don't teach maybe are aware that teachers need to have and so, you know, I think I have whimsy. Right. Whimsy is one that. of the traits of a teacher. And that has to be really carefully done and artfully <laughs> done. And, you know, Mark, I'm a, a fan of Emerson. And so the inspiration of that comes from Emerson, who said I would you know, carve on the, the lentils of my doorpost whim. And then Emerson says that it can't just be that. But he says life's too short to sort of argue over the details. I'm going to insist on whim. Right. And I put that in to say, If you're trying to cultivate a certain kind of connection with kids and community with kids, then wherever you can inject humanity is going to facilitate that. And it seems to me a teacher exercising a little bit of whim shows joy, openness to spontaneity. And my kids used to, we sometimes would invent games in classrooms, like we're going to leave class when three people get this ball to land in the sink or whatever. And And there was no point other than let's play a little before we leave. Right. But it also lets kids relax and it creates a certain kind of space. I mean, the other one, Mark, I talk about ingenuity in there, which I think is an underappreciated virtue of teaching, because when you're taught to teach, you're taught how to structure the things that you actually can control. And then you learn that there's so many things that you actually don't get to control in a classroom. And then what you have to draw on is a kind of resourcefulness or what I call, I mean, I I name ingenuity of like figuring out in the moment what is required here. Right, right. Over and over and over and over and over. It's one of the things that makes teaching so hard is the need for constant improvisation. Yeah, little decisions and improvisations. Yes, yes, yes. It's one of the things that makes a teacher noticeable to students, I think, because when that's happening, you feel the genuine authenticity of the event in a way that is less true than somebody who's just only ever doing the predictable. Yeah. Well, I'd like to use the word event there. If I were interviewing you, I would start probing there what you mean. I, I like that. You know, Todd, there's so many things in this book that I just find incredibly inspiring. And like you, I've been affected by Emerson and William James, who are towering figures in the book in different ways and for different reasons. There's an amazing section, I think, in pages 82 to 83. And I wonder if you could just read that one paragraph that I asked you to prepare. I think it summarizes some really important issues that we'd like to explore. Sure. This is about William James. Most students can't resist this kind of all-in commitment, and most are on to insincerity in a flash. They know when a teacher is dialing it in and compensating with charisma or sheer experience. They know the difference between lamplight and fire. For James, teachers have to steal the fire of what they're trying to teach in order to have something with which to ignite actual students. Robert Frost's writing mantra applies, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no passion in the teacher, no passion in the student. And this is harder than it seems because almost no teacher gets to teach exactly what they want and love and already have burning inside. 
but instead have to nourish passion for whatever they've been asked to teach and are usually asked to do too much. The high existential bar James sets, or that I'm setting through James, may be the reason it's hard to achieve and scale what I'm suggesting we aim for, teaching life, meeting life with life. But that's the bar nonetheless, no love in the teacher, no love in the student. I think that paragraph does about as good a job of summarizing so many of the themes throughout this book. And I want to just explore a couple of them. I love this contrast that you're drawing between the teacher who, as it were, dials it in versus those who are actually full of the light out of the fire itself. And you summarize that by they know that students know the difference between lamplight and fire. Just say a bit more about that, especially in your role as head. You are no doubt involved in encouraging teachers and challenging teachers and so forth. So how do you encourage them to be fire, especially yeah. <laughs> in the rigors of day in and day out teaching? Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, I just begin by recognizing how hard the job is and how necessary it is some days to just be good enough. And that's okay. But I mean, the bar for me is, have you internalized something important for students? So do you love kids and do you love what you're trying to teach kids? The reason I got into a leadership role was because I wanted to test whether the things in 20 years in a classroom I came to love about teaching, I did want to see whether was it possible in a leadership role to have an impact on teachers to do that. And some of it is modeling. I like when we have faculty gatherings or professional development with faculties, insisting on things that model passion. We tell stories. We celebrate things that we're seeing in school narrating what you're aspiring to when you see it is one way a community, you know, internalizes that as a community. And then, you know, it's a thousand lunch conversations and, you know, shared passions. There's a group of teachers who we did a little workshop on Macbeth together because we want to go see the play together. None of them are teaching Macbeth. We just are sharing that experience of doing something together that's fueling our interest in the world and in Shakespeare. So, I mean, seizing those opportunities, but I think it's the long, slow work of how you build shared values in a community is this work. Right, right. I wonder if there's a teacher that you would contrast perhaps with the first teacher you spoke about whose quietness surprised you, and that makes total sense. She had her own kind of fire. It may have been a, yeah. <laughs> a gentler fire than a blazing yeah. <laughs> fire, but, but nevertheless, it was a fire. But tell us about another teacher, because you certainly illustrate that in different ones. Yeah, you think about like a big figure, a charismatic yes. figure. Yeah. So I'll tell you about my seminary professor, uh, Diogenes Allen, who was a, a philosophy of religion professor. And he was just as quirky as it gets, full of idiosyncrasy, a little bit abrasive. He was eccentric in his thinking and eccentric in his personality. And I remember when he would open up to a class discussion and ask for students to share their points of view on a text. Rather than what many teachers do, which is sort of affirming something about what you're saying and then drawing it out and then but then trying to elaborate on it, Diogenes would just say, nope, nope. You know, if you offered a point of view, it's like that's not it at all and move on. And he wasn't trying to build relationships with us. And so I have critiques of Diogenes, but he was so inside of what he was teaching us and the questions. It was a philosophy of religion class. He made us read one text very slowly and very deeply 
and his care for the arguments and his care for the text, it put energy in the room and people wanted to rise to the challenge of Diogenes. Right. Our first papers he gave back and he said, there are two grades on your paper. The first one is the grade you deserve. And the one below is the grade I'm putting in the grade book because I know you have to be concerned about other things and I'm not going to take that fight on right now. But the first grade is the one you deserve. And it was the only C I ever got when I studied at seminary. He just had that extraordinary personality. I mean, I can see him in my mind's eye walking into class one day. The topic was something else. And he took out Wittgenstein's culture and value, said, I'm going to read you something. And he just read it. And he said, yeah, this doesn't have anything to do with what we've been talking about, what we're learning today, but you need to hear this. And he read this passage from Wittgenstein. And and I bought the book. Like, it made me go get the book. And I've inhabited that book for a long time. And he trusted his own (laughs) idiosyncrasy. And it was infectious. Although, as I say in the chapter on Diogenes, the TA had to rescue everybody. Diogenes didn't do all the work that a good teacher does, but he did something indispensable in a really powerful way. Yes, yes. I had a teacher in college who was an English professor, and he was a small-statured man, but whimsical and (laughs) very passionate. And he had a thick black book of notes that was really filled with scrawl that was honestly just astounding to look at. How a person could look (laughs) at that and see words was beyond me. But in any case, he would open his little black book in a very quiet way. He had a very quiet voice. He would speak at the start of every class for about five or seven minutes or so from this little black book. And they were just perspectives. And then he always tapped his chest. He'd say, (laughs) now, now, friends, now that the universe is in order. (laughs) class can begin. (laughs) And then he would go on, right? You would never be late for that class. And you would never be late because you felt like you were being given that moment that any great educational experience can be where suddenly a convergence between teacher and student and moment and profundity and lightheartedness and the greatest seriousness and the greatest humility were all brought together in that moment. And I loved it for reasons that were built off of eccentricity in actual fact. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You know, when you're encountering someone who has a little bit of that Promethean figure who's managed to steal fire from something sacred and difficult and bring it to you. And those teachers are unforgettable. They're hard to scale, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be inspired by them and try to facilitate the life of that, the Promethean life. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm Mark Laverton. You're listening to Conversing, a production of Fuller Studio. Todd, you say yourself in the book that the schools that you've been able to teach in were privileged settings and that they gave you an opportunity to be perhaps somewhat freer to do some of the things that you're describing in the book that might be true of teachers in really, really difficult, impoverished, or very troubled places. Comment on the relevance of what you're saying in this book to people who are in less privileged contexts. Yeah, no, thank you, Mark. I just begin by saying the schools I attended growing up were not great. And when I think about Miss Acuff in that high school class, like she managed to connect to me in a setting in which there wasn't a lot of that going on and there wasn't a lot of rich learning going on. 
So I do think what's transferable is a mindset of like, what are you there to do? Right. You know, if you read the book, you'll know that my middle daughter is in her first year of teaching at Teach for America in a challenging context and environment. And her challenges are enormous and her job is harder than mine. But I think regardless of your context, orienting yourself to what you're trying to do with kids in whatever context you have them is valuable. And if not universal, there is a commonness to it that you're trying to see and know kids and move them forward. They are extending themselves in your classroom and you're trying to figure out how to facilitate that. And the other thing you're bringing is you do know things they don't know and you have a passion that they haven't yet cultivated and you bring that to them and then how to structure that and what you're expected to do in those contexts. Right. You're right. Some contexts are more intricate and challenging than others. But those pieces, I think, are what transfer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. And I did feel myself that while I have not been an inner city teacher or in a rural setting, the qualities of people that I know who have been formed by those settings educationally are people that usually still, like even students in highly privileged contexts, it's often just one or two teachers that make a whole lifetime of difference, right. Right? That's right? So it's not the consistency over all of the educational experience, but the singular teacher, sometimes a singular encounter. That same teacher that I was just describing, for example, the grade in that class was all based on one final exam. And so you show up, you have, of course, no idea what the question is going to be. You know, it's going to be expansive. And there was a guy sitting next to me as I was filling out my own blue book response to the question, who literally filled about two blue books and was, (laughs) I think, no doubt, one of the finest students in the class. But the surprising thing to me was that that teacher received my blue book, which was much shorter, quite deliberately. It was probably the shortest final exam writing I did. It might have only been six or seven pages. But what astounded me was that he heard what I was saying, and then he reflected that. And that was just one of those crystallized moments of transformation to me. It really isn't about mass. It isn't about quantity. It isn't about knowing everything. But it is about seeing what you are seeing, learning what you can learn, saying what you can say, and then that being heard in its fullness by a teacher who's prepared to actually pay attention in the way we've been describing. It's amazing to me. It is. Tell us a little bit about why William James' work has been so significant to you, and likewise for Emerson. Those are huge questions, I realize. Yeah, huge figures. I mean, I go on reading them and thinking about them. I mean, James, it seemed to me, was fully inside of our modern intellectual dilemmas and wrestled with them genuinely and personally, which I needed when I encountered him. I needed somebody who cared that maybe some answers that we had to big questions in the past were more problematic than they used to be. One response to that is sort of, confident dismissal. But James didn't do that. James was troubled by hard things that we care about with answers that maybe are ambiguous to us or that have shifted over time. And I needed that feeling of dilemma in him. And that made me trust him. I also trusted him as I read a book of his former students describing him and listening to how his students described him made me trust him. But what I like about James is he's able at the far end of wrestling with really big modern questions to land generously. And it's easy to land skeptically and cynically. I mean, I would say one way to frame sort of the challenge of being a modern contemporary person is how do you avoid cynicism? What's your path to avoiding being a cynic? 
And I found in James somebody who avoided dogmatism, but maintained generosity. And that was really important to me. It let me feel like I could have an openness to the world and not need to solidify hard answers to everything before I could be generous and compassionate to other people. Right. And Emerson... It's the relentless belief in ongoingness, but the becomingness of what our life is like, so that he is, as a teacher, what I draw from Emerson is, our students, I'm not trying to pin them down and craft them into something, and I'm not trying to make sure that they stick their marks in all of these major ways, but they are on a journey of becoming and sort of an onwardness, and I need to figure out how to teach to that. Yes. And that also feels really generous to me. So maybe what they both have in common, and Emerson, by the way, held William James as a baby. He was friends with his father. I love love that when you cited that in the book. (laughs) Connected right here in New York City. But maybe they both feel that there's a generosity of spirit and thinking that I think you can't teach without. I tell my teachers, and when we're hiring people, you can't be a teacher and not be a little bit optimistic. And Emerson and James both fuel that for me. Yes. Well, that's an interesting word because it does suggest an angle of vision that can then become invitational, which is one of the things that I think both of them have in common. This feeling that the depth of their inquiry, their identification of the crises of the human condition, etc., is so real. And yet there's a sense of invitation that draws us meaningfully toward a future that we don't have to describe as simply full of the right answers or right. full of exact outcomes or any other kind of technologized vision of how all this is going to turn out. It's instead a picture of something that's really unfolding. That is part of the magic, which is, I think, part of why it's so deeply connected to your approach to teaching. Yeah, that's beautifully put, Mark. I'm going to steal all of that for my next attempt to answer that question. I I agree. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about is there's really hard things that happen in teaching. Students that are in crises where the drama is much greater outside the classroom than in the classroom for their own lives. And As you know, my wife, Janet, was a high school English teacher for 20 years, and she was the kind of teacher I think that you're describing in the book. In actual fact, I think she was really a remarkable teacher for many, many reasons. But I know that for her, one of the challenges was when the crises outside the classroom, often in homes, preset so many things that meant that the encounter in the classroom was so hampered and yet also simultaneously so important. I wonder if you could just talk about that, because the optimism of James and Emerson in those circumstances can be very difficult to know how to convey. Yeah, I agree. It is, in addition to being glorious work and really hard work, it's heartbreaking work, too, for all the reasons you suggest. It's why it's so important to get to know your students. And it's not you know, you're not in a therapeutic relationship with them and you don't wait to build a relationship to do work together. But as you work together, you're trying to get to understand that you're really paying attention to what's going on with them. And it obviously doesn't mean you can solve all the bigger frameworks of their life for them, but it can help calibrate how you interact with them. And what I've referred to earlier is all the incidental interactions that you have with students in a school day and in a school year. You really do share life with them for the year that you have them. You spend more time with them in some instances than their parents do. And so I think for me, there's hard aspects of what you're describing where you actually have to form strategies for supporting students and think of deep partnerships with other adults and making sure you're connecting to families and things like that. But when I think about the teacher, 
paying attention to kids in all aspects of their life at school, like going up and down staircases, standing in a lunch line with them. How do you greet them in the morning at the door? When they do something phenomenal in class, how do you let them know that? When they do something problematic, how do you let them know that? And you're building a year-long meaningful connection to them in all those ways, as well as, all right, I'm going to teach you how to write well this year, and here's how we're going to do that. And that's where I think that dimension of attention comes in. I think the first story I tell in the book, this is a simple one, and this was not a heartbreaking story, uh, but just of a new student in a school on the first day of school when the kids were throwing their backpacks into their lockers to rush off to lunch. And this kid just was standing around looking a little bit lost. And a teacher paid attention to that and went over and walked him to the lunchroom, but also built a little relationship with him as a new student and then kept up with that. It's that act of like, here's a kid who's new and needs an adult right now. It's a thousand versions of that. And then for kids who are in real crisis, it's maybe a thousand intentional versions of that. Like, how am I going to be more intentional about checking in with this student or paying attention to this student or whatever, uh, or writing the extra note on their paper or sending the extra email to them so the kid feels known and seen and claimed? Right. You know, one of the things that intersects with what you've described is something very pragmatic. And when I became a seminary teacher, one of the things I most disliked was the necessity of grades and grading. So I wonder in the picture that you're giving, I didn't ever feel like grades were <laughs> present. So first of all, I have to know whether Avenues is a grading yeah. school. And secondly, yeah. if it is, and then how grading, which for many students is in a way the sharp end of the spear of the teacher, right? Yeah. Talk about that in its relationship yeah. to everything else you've been talking about. I laugh, but it's one of those topics that's an ongoing pain point and discussion point among teachers. We do give grades starting at a certain grade, but younger kids don't get grades. But you're right. It's the tip of the spear and you can write half a page of comments on a paper or now you know, type them in a document and they just get breezed past and whisked over. And the thing that matters is the, grade. the grade. <laughs> so they're great, good people working on this as you know, larger strategies for yes. what should schools do. I'm going to let that good work go on in those spheres and hope we make progress in thinking about how we give students feedback. The way it functions, it's, it's a shorthand for feedback. Yes. And what you want to do is make sure that students are getting the rich feedback for which it is a shorthand and the grade doesn't become a replacement for the feedback. Right. So the goal is students know what they're trying to learn how to do and how they're doing against that. And that's what you're trying to give them feedback on and what assessment is for. And letter grades can be painful if they're not expressions of a lot of rich, clear feedback that you're giving to students. So I think I'll leave it at that, not because I want to dodge the question of whether we should have grades, but just to say it, it is complex and a lot of good people are putting their minds uh, to that. And it's one of the things I think we live with the system we've inherited and try to make it better and reassess it. Yeah, I'm not really actually sure myself what I think of grades. I was asking it partly from the angle of how does the fact that the teacher is also a grader end up colliding or not with all of the richness of what you're describing about the relationship. I mean, I have all kinds of rich relationships for which I provide no grades. <laughs> so to have suddenly cultivation of a relationship and at the end, I'm going to give you a grade feels like a violation. I know. I know. It's like your parent grading your kids at the end of every week of how they've yes. done is being your children. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I know it's hard and there are contradictions there. I could say, so another thing I inherit 
inherit from William James is a pragmatic mindset. Figuring out how to manage a problem is with a group of kids. I would always, with students for whom I was worried about handing back an assessment with a grade on it that I thought would land in any kind of either confusing or painful way, I would always try to structure a conversation with that kid so I'm extending the relationship with them and talk them through or prepare the ground or ask them if they wanted another chance at doing the assessment, if it was that kind of assessment. So you're still building on your relationships because now I know which kid that this is going to be a problematic experience for them and I can do something about it. Yes. And that's what I would say. And you're right. It introduces an aspect into a relationship that is potentially complicating for trying to connect with kids and and help them become themselves. Right. I love that. I think that is exactly it. It's always about continuing the presence, whereas a grade can feel like discontinuity. It can actually be a bridge to a different kind of continuity that takes them in their work even more seriously and constructively. Yeah. And the thing we don't maybe focus on is that for students who are performing at a really high level and who are really invested in doing great work, it's an opportunity to express something to them too. It's not the only way that you can do that and maybe not the best way, but it's another way of communicating to kids who are really invested in making real progress of encouraging them to. Right. Yeah. So what grades introduces in my mind in part is then parents. So you have a chapter on parents and the role of parents in relationship to teachers and their student, etc. So just share a little bit about that, because certainly so much has been written about helicopter parents who come in trying to defend their children against an A minus when they really should have gotten an A or whatever it might have been. So talk to us about that. Yeah. And you'll hear if you talk to enough teachers, you will begin to see that they will either hint or just state outright. I got into this job to work with kids, not with uh, adults and a real allergy to parents. I mean, the beginning point for me is, and I love partnering with parents. I think what's in the best interest of kids is if they feel that the adults in their life are partnered for their success and that the teachers aren't on one side and their parents on another. Yes. And that's healthy for students. My beginning point is parents love their kids more than they love their own life. And when they come in distress, they are distressed because the thing that they love more than anything in the world is in their mind has a need that's not being met or misjudged. And so I begin there and it allows what you don't want to end up in is a sort of a power struggle between school and parents. You want to be partnered. Your common interest is we're all invested in the success of your kid. Right. What I say in that chapter is you can do the hard conversations much better if They're built on a foundation of other conversations. So they're proactive interactions between teachers and parents that are just positive or informative of, hey, here's what we're doing in class right now. I wanted you all to know about it. Here are some great things the kids did in this unit. So the conversations with parents should be a lot of proactive communication about good things. And then when their hard things come up, you're building on relationships with them too. But you're right. You know, in addition to there's helicopter parents and now and snowplow parents, right? Of like plowing all the <laughs> obstacles out of the way. That's just understandable to me. But if our job is what's in the best interest of this kid, then that's where the conversation has to center. Right, right. That's a voice of experience and wisdom, Todd. Thank you for, for sharing that. <laughs> It's time for us to come toward a close of our conversation, but I go back to the paragraph that you read and this center point of passion, no passion in the teacher, no passion in the student, no love in the teacher, no love in the student. 
let's just close by focusing on that particular thing. This deep sense of connectedness, as you were just saying about the primary interest that you share with parents and that you share with your student is actually their best interest and in what's going to enable them to thrive. And so it involves this area of passion. And when I think about the teachers that have taught me, undoubtedly the ones that have had the greatest impact are passionate teachers, I have to say. There are some others that are outside that, that had their own impact differently. But primarily, I would say passion was one of the things. And it was a provocative encounter day in and day out in the classroom in a way that was just like extending my universe, enlarging my mind and heart, engaging me with a greater perception of the world and the things that matter. Talk to us as we close about passion. Yeah, and I agree with all of that. And I would say, so there's a less obvious dimension about passion in a teacher, because the first dimension is what I experienced with Diogenes and what you experienced with your English teacher. They're passionate about what they've read and investigated and studied and learned and passionate about the stuff. Yes. But the thing that's less obvious is great teachers are passionate about what you've described as the event between a teacher and a student. I sometimes just use the word encounters, like that place of encounter. Yes. Like you're also passionate about seeing that happen. And so seeing a kid wake up and Tolstoy, you know, I tell the story about Tolstoy as a teacher in the book. And what was remarkable to me about reading about Tolstoy as a teacher is that he was teaching kids how to write and he was a pretty good writer right. <laughs> uh, himself, <laughs> but he would get excited and delight at little moves that his students made that weren't obvious. So he talks about a student misusing a verb and he says, oh no, most teachers would correct this, but here's why this is a delightful use of the word hasten. So that's Tolstoy not being passionate about literature. And it's not him just being passionate about kids. It's about being passionate about that educational event <laughs> that's happening. You know, my best colleagues over the years my happiest moments as a teacher is in between classes, class will break, or you're going down to lunch. And a colleague comes up to me. It's like, you have to come in here and see what this student wrote on this. You have to see what they did and show me a piece of work that a student, and we delight in that. Yes. And that's the less obvious passion. And actually, Diogenes missed that. But the great teachers are passionate about seeing those moments where their kids are coming to life. And it's beautiful. And Tolstoy says... No one has a right to see this. I mean, he marveled when students kind of woke up to themselves or he saw hints of inspiration and he kind of shuddered and said, I, this is so powerful and so beautiful that I'm not sure I have a right to be observing this. But teachers get to do that. Yes. And it's the thing that I think is not obvious and doesn't get told as much, not in the job descriptions as much, but it's an underlying thing that drives our stamina and our own passion. Right, right. I've committed this book to many friends. I've actually bought many copies and given it away because I feel like it's so inspiring to people who are teachers and also to people who are not teachers, but who care about the kind of teaching life, the double entendre of the title that's both about teaching life and about the teaching life. And the vision that you portray here is needed, period, I think, in our well-being as human beings and in society and culture in general. And I do want to say that I can't think of a profession that is more important right now in our own United States context and really around the world than teaching. It's clearly one of the most important things that should and is happening, often against extraordinary headwinds. So thank you for the inspiration and aspiration of this portrait of teaching. And Todd, I'm thrilled that this book has come out. It feels like a manifesto, among other things, and one that I want to receive myself as a teacher. 
but I also want to commend strongly to anyone else who might be interested. So thank you again for being a guest today. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure to see you and a privilege to talk with you. been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.